there's more to this life than I thought. And James inspires me. The things he says have encouraged me. It's like there's a walk, there's a path, and it's leading to something more real than I've ever known before, and it's exciting. I get around James and I hear things that help me in my life, my work. This work he talks about has become my work. I am excited about the possibility that other people could be affected, other people could be inspired to work on themselves, to grow, to, to realize there's more to this life. It's interesting to note that an ascending octave starts with a passive do. Now, where must an active do lead? Yes, this is a question. If an ascending octave begins with a passive do, where must an active do lead? There's only one other direction. It's either ascending or descending. Octaves don't go sideways. They go up or they go down. So if you begin an octave with a passive do, it can be an ascending octave. All ascending octaves begin with a passive do. All descending octaves begin with an active do. Are you beginning to see the ramifications of this? What are the ramifications of this? That's right. You start off with an I'm going to do this. You start up actively doing something. Your chances of success are almost nil. But if you start off with a passive dough, that has the ability to be an ascending octave. This enigma exists in all esoteric teachings and leads to the belief in initiations, secret exercises, and practices. All of this is just an ancient method of the priesthood to remain in power. Everyone knows this, but we don't talk about it. We don't talk about it because we want to use that power of the priesthood. Mothers have that power over their children. Fathers have that power over their children. Husbands are supposed to have that power over their wives, and wives secretly have that power over their husbands. But we're not supposed to talk about that because in our culture, that's not okay. In our culture, we just pretend that it's some other way. Just like in every culture, someone is pretending that the truth is something else. That's because we're asleep. That's because of who we are. We're asleep. And when you're asleep, you can imagine anything. You can dream anything. When you're asleep and you're in a dream, you can fly. When you're asleep and you're in a dream, you can catch bullets in your teeth, you know, and you're not hurt by them. You can do all kinds of things in dreams. You can do all kinds of things in your imagination. But when it comes to reality, it's a totally different matter. Jesus said, The Pharisees and the scholars have taken the keys of knowledge and have hidden them. They have not entered nor have they allowed those who want to enter to do so. That quote was from the Gospel of Thomas, which of course is not canonized, so a lot of people don't really appreciate the Gospel of Thomas. And it's not set out in story form, it's basically just the sayings of Jesus. So Thomas just collected these things Jesus said and wrote them down. It's also interesting to note that it may well be the oldest text, as old as or maybe a little older than the canonized versions of the Gospels. But it was rejected in 325 in the Council of Nine by the church, and then later the whole gospel was to be burned. And if you go through history, you'll notice that there are times when man gets very close to understanding something, and then there comes this big wave of religious fervor that wipes everything out, and then you end up with something like the Dark Ages. And then there's, again, this the Age of Enlightenment or the Renaissance comes along and people begin to get light on things. They begin to look at things again without all of the darkness of oppression, the oppression of religious leaders or the oppression of whoever is trying to keep things the way they want them instead of allow things to unfold the way they need to unfold. So Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew, which of course is canonized, so it's okay, 
But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Notice it's the same idea. It's the same idea that teachers, scholars, Pharisees... Now, a Pharisee is just a strict religious leader. It doesn't have to be a Pharisee of 2,000 years ago, a Pharisee of Judaism. A Pharisee is, is living in you. There are a number of scribes and Pharisees and scholars living in you that only will have it this way and no other way. They're very restrictive and contracted, and this is the way it's going to be. This is the way it must be. You'll find them laying down the law for other people, laying down the law for your children, laying down the law for your employees, laying down the law for your family. And they're very strict about it. They don't follow it themselves, but they try to make sure that you do. So the whole idea was, and this knowledge is available, but it's hidden from some people, and they've hidden it from other people. We love to blame all those other people, but the truth is, it's our pride that makes them effective. The scribes and the Pharisees represent our own proud and vain eyes. Pride is an active doe, isn't it? Because pride comes from, I think I can do. When you think you can do, and you start off with an active doe, you miss a lot of things. When you don't think you can do, it's a passive doe. It's a doe that needs more understanding. It's a doe that knows that I can't do this. Here's the strange thing. Yesterday, Steve talked about this, and he talked about having both these does inside of himself at the same time. There's one group of eyes that have this active doe. Yes, let's do this. And another group of eyes says, we can't. There's no way that we can do this. And then another group of eyes that sees both of them and is still hopeful. That's the way it is for us. What we fail to see is that we are not one. We fail to take into consideration that we are not one, that just because there's this group of eyes that starts off thinking it can do doesn't mean you can do, but it doesn't mean you can't do. And just because there's a group of eyes that says it's all hopeless and goes into despair and says I can't do, that's just the swing of the pendulum. That's not it either. If no action is taken, harmony remains, or practice not doing and everything will fall into place. This from the Tao Te Ching, Book 1, Chapter 3. If no action is taken, harmony remains. It's interesting that if you look at nature, it just goes on and it does what it does. But you look at nature where man touches it and things go awry. Species disappear or this happens or that happens. It gets out of balance somehow. So the harmony is eliminated because we don't practice no action, not doing. Non-action is a principle of this work, but it's a principle that's rarely ever talked about in this work. And the reason it's rarely ever talked about in this work is because most of what you hear about this work is the beginning. Because mostly, people never get beyond the beginning. So it's a constant beginning, beginning, beginning. It's like going to a fundamental Christian church where they're always having altar calls and everybody's always getting saved and you're always getting filled with the Holy Spirit and you're always praying in tongues and you're always doing this and you're just always doing the same thing over and over and over again, year in and year out. But nobody gets beyond that. Or if they do, they leave the church. And it's okay for that. I'm not criticizing this. I'm saying that's fine because there are people who just are always coming into that. And there are people who always stay there and support that. And that's fine. Whatever works for you is okay with me. But there's a reason for it. The reason is because people are always beginning. When they're always beginning, they're always beginning with an active doe. Rarely do people ever begin with a passive doe. They think they can do. They read the Ten Commandments. They think they can do that. They read the Sermon on the Mount. They think, oh, okay, well, I can do that. And then they find that they can't. They can't do it because it's not an ascending octave because when they start thinking they can do it, it's an ascending octave. They've started with their pride. They've started with their personality. They started from a place inside of themselves that is doomed to failure. 
because it's acquired and it's not real, and so it can't do anything real. Valuation is a passive dough. You remember I talked about the first dough, the dough in the work octave is valuation. You've got to evaluate the work. You've got to evaluate it. You can't look at it and say, oh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. It's just jumping right to Ray. You skip dough. You can't make a good Ray because Ray is built on dough. Thinking I can do, that I can easily change my behavior, that I can become different, that I can behave differently if I want to. This is thinking from active dough. Can you see how when you started off, you were thinking from active dough? You thought, well, I can do this. I can change. I can change myself. I can change my being. I can be different. I can behave differently. Now you're not so sure. Maybe you can't do it. Mostly you're beyond the despair of I can't do it. So that's a good thing. But mostly you've given up the idea that you can do. Some think they can do anything by force. This is going to strike at the root of some people. So please don't think that I'm singling you out. But some of you think that you can do anything by force. You can compel people. It's a lot like the Crusades or a lot like the Inquisition. People were compelled to believe in God by violent measures. People are compelled to believe in God and to do good things and to be righteous through fear. Fear of damnation, fear of hellfire, fear of punishment. And you see this as an active dough. To compel someone to do something is an active dough. It's starting from the wrong attitude. Whereas this work starts from the attitude that you can't do and that you have to have help. And that already, what do you mean I have to have help? That already offends our pride and vanity. What do you mean I have to have help? I can do anything I set my mind to. My mother told me that. (laughs) Your mother told you a lot of lies, but her mother told her a lot of lies. And even if she hadn't heard those lies, she would have still had motherly lies. Because mothers lie to protect their children. At least that's why they think they lie. When actually they're lying to protect themselves, but they imagine that they're lying to protect their children. Do all mothers do this? Well, let's not get into that. If you're going to be defensive about it, I don't even think we should discuss it. You'll have to give up your defensiveness. And when you give up your defensiveness, then there will be no more question. The question comes from defensiveness. It doesn't come from a desire to know. It comes from a desire to be right, a desire to argue, a desire to defend one's position. And that's not the kind of question that I answer. That's why when you ask a question, I say, well, that's not the real question. There's another question. Because the answer you want is not the answer that's true. So we ask a question that's a lie, hopefully, hoping we'll get get the answer that's a lie that justifies our question or our position. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. Matthew eleven twelve. There's a universal law. How you obtain something is how you must keep it. If you take something by force, you will have to keep it by force. If you take something by violence, you will have to keep it by violence. If life gives you something, you don't have to hold on to it. If you do hold on to it, you are holding on to it by force and it will be taken from you or you will have to keep it that way. And eventually you will lose the force to keep it and you will lose it. The only way to live life when life gives you something is with a passive dough. The only way you're going to ascend on this octave is with a passive dough. But if you cling and try and hold what life has given you, then you're using force And that means you're going to lose it because you will eventually lose the force. Your attitude toward a thing determines your valuation of it. And whatever your valuation is of a thing will determine your attitude toward it. Through valuation, a thing becomes precious to you or not. Here's another example from esoteric writings. Now, you remember the story of Isaac 
Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is so, why then am I this way? Have you ever found that in yourself? The children are struggling within you, and you say, Why am I this way? If it is so, why am I this way? Why is it the pendulum is in me? Why is it everything in me is struggling? It's the swing of the pendulum this way and then that way. These eyes want this and these eyes want that. This is why you are this way, because you're not one. So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples shall be separated from your body, and one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came forth red all over, like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. And afterward his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob, and Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. Now here's the part that I wanted to use as an illustration. I wanted to give you the background story so you have an idea of what we're talking about. Please don't get the idea we're talking about two guys who lived 4,000 years ago. We're talking about you and what goes on inside of you. We're talking about states of consciousness. We're talking about the esoteric meaning of this. We're talking about why this story has survived. We're talking about what the person who crafted the story wanted you to get from it interiorly, internally, in your interior. When the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a peaceful man, living in tents. Now Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And when Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, Please, let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished. Therefore his name is called Edom, which means the red. But Jacob said, First sell me your birthright. I don't know whether you know or not, but in the East, their birthright was a very important thing. The firstborn was the heir, and so everything went to him, and whatever was left over went to anybody else. So being the firstborn was great. It was a very important thing in the East. But Esau said, Behold, I'm about to die. So of what use then is the birthright to me? And Jacob said, First swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. My point is valuation. Esau did not value the birthright. He did not value his position. He did not value where he was in life. But Jacob saw the value of Esau's position. And because he saw that Esau didn't value his position, he asked him if he would sell it. And so Esau, because he did not value his position, sold it, and Jacob gained the position. The younger became the leader, the stronger of the older. And how did the weaker, peaceful man living in tents become stronger than the strong man who was out hunting and like that? How did that happen? It happened by the ascending and descending octave. Esau was on a descending octave. He took everything into his hands and he went and did things. But it led him to being famished. There was no gain from it. It wasn't an ascending octave. So he was descending. So it led him to being famished, being in want, being in need. Jacob 
on the other hand, had begun on a passive doe. So he was in an ascending octave. When Esau came in and Jacob saw where he was, he said, well, sell me your birthright. I'll give you this food. And he was willing to do it. So that's how it happened. You need to connect up this. What people do is their dough. It's how they're sounding their dough. And if they're sounding their dough with action but no valuation, they're going to go down. But if they sound their dough with valuation but without action, they're going to rise. They're going to go up. So this has got to tell you something about yourself and how you work. Or else what good is it? It's just a nice story. What good is all this? All this. All this that I'll say to you this morning is no different than any of this that, I, that you ever read in any esoteric teachings. It means nothing until you apply it to yourself. And when do we do that? Well, after we value it, then what's the next note in the octave, in the work octave? Ray, and what does that represent? It's applying the work to yourself. This is only, it's been a week since I talked about this. And you have the podcast, you could listen to it, but you're too smart for that. You already know all this stuff, so you don't do that. But it's the other people. See, the other people out there who can't come here and sit here and listen to this and talk to me and do this, those people listen to it again and again and again. Why? Because they get something new every time they listen to it. I get emails from people all the time. I listen to this three or four or five times, and I get something new every single time. And it's because of our condition. It's, it's how we are. There's a lot to this. The whole work is in one talk. The whole thing is in one talk. The whole thing, from start to finish, complete, total, absolute liberation is in one talk. But we are too smart for that. We go on to the next thing. We're hurrying, hurrying to the next thing. It's ridiculous to do that, but it's what we do because we don't have proper valuation. So you have to continually sound do again and again and again because every time you sound do, it ends up on a descending octave because you found that you were, you were thinking you could do something. But it's when you get to the place where you really see that you can't do anything that you can sound a do that will lead up so if you value something, you remember it and you care for it. If it is great, you regard yourself as second to it because what you value is greater than you are. What do you value that's greater than you are? That's a big problem for people. They don't value anything that's greater than they are. They don't value this work as greater than they are. They value this work as something that can make them, that can give them what they want or can make them greater. But they do not value the work as greater than them. How do we know that? Well, we know that by some of the things they say. Well, I don't believe that. Well, I don't think that's right. Well, you know, so-and-so says this. Already, they, they get to decide what of the work is right and what of the work is wrong. It's like people take esoteric teachings. They go through it and they read and they go, well, I like this, but I don't like that. They accept what they like. It's like a cafeteria. Dr. Lamsa used to say this. People go to the Bible and they think it's like a cafeteria. You just take what you want and leave the rest. But it's not. You have to take the whole thing together because that's the only way it makes sense. He could have been speaking about any esoteric system because the truth is you have to take the whole thing. You can't just take part of it because if you take part of it, it doesn't work any more than your car will work if you take out the transmission. Well, the engine will run and, you know, you may, the heater may work, but you're not going anywhere. Not, it doesn't serve the purpose of transportation. Or you take out the engine, leave the transmission, leave the gas and everything, but you take out the engine. You know, it's not going anywhere. So it's not fulfilling its purpose. It's become something else. It becomes a living room or, you know, I don't know what. It becomes something else. It's not a car anymore. And so these esoteric teachings are a vehicle. And 
you have to take the whole thing and you have to learn how to operate it. And you have to learn, and the only way to learn how to operate it is to learn why you can't operate it. And the only way to learn why you can't operate it is to discover who you are, what you are, what you are doing, what you're really like. Once you discover that, you'll see why you can't do things. You'll see why you can't operate. You'll see why you can't keep your word. You'll see why you have no will. You'll see why you're filled, why your emotional center is cluttered with negative emotions. You'll see why when somebody says something to you that's offensive, it's offensive. When somebody says something to someone who is free that's offensive, they don't find it offensive at all. It doesn't bother them at all. They don't even give it a second thought. But we're not like that because we're not free. We are triggered, pulled, activated by events, outer events in life. What someone says, what someone does, what's the stock market doing, what's happening in the crops, what's happening in commodities, what's happening over here. We're affected by that. Do you have a job or not have a job? Does your wife love you or not love you? Did your dog bite you or did your dog wag its tail when when you came in? All of these things we are affected by. This means we are not free. And we can't see how we can operate this vehicle that will take us through life in a totally different way because we are not free and we don't know why we're not free. We don't understand it. And so this work aims at first helping us to understand why we are what we are and how we are not what we think we are. And that's a very distasteful subject. People will not do that unless they have a very, very strong valuation. They really value this work. Now, when I say this work, I mean any esoteric system, genuine esoteric system that works. The unfortunate thing is we have scraps and bits and pieces and fragments of esoteric systems, but not the whole system. The fortunate thing is, is that if you can get some scrap, some piece, if it's a big enough piece of an esoteric system, and you can apply it, it will lead to the rest of it, even though that may be hidden in the world. You will be led to the rest of it. This is why it's said, to do this work, a man must believe in greater mind. If you don't think there's anything greater than you, if we feel we know better than the work, we can't do the work because we can't sound the note do. Simply cannot do it. We can't sound the note do. We can't make a good beginning unless we think there is something greater than me. And the truth is, if you look at yourself, you don't think there's anything greater than you. Even if you do think there's something greater than you, you think that you become as great as it by caring about it, by recognizing it by acknowledging it. This is why fundamentally people go to religions because they can believe in something greater than themselves and that makes them greater. Have you ever noticed that Christians are not really humble people? They're very proud people. They're very judgmental people as a rule. They, they tend to say what's wrong with someone else. They tend to say, you need what I have. You lack, but I have it all. That's why religions are so popular, because people cling to a God that makes them greater in their own eyes, greater than all the people who are not clinging to that God. It's a very pernicious thing, and it's not meant to be that way, but it's what we do. It's what, in our dysfunctional state, it's what we do with religion. Religion is not bad. Christianity is beautiful. Islam is beautiful. Judaism is beautiful. Buddhism is beautiful. Hinduism is beautiful. They're all beautiful. They all lead to something But the problem is, is that when we touch them, it sours them and tarnishes them and taints them and breaks them. Because where we touch them from is a descending dough on a descending octave. We think we can do something. We think we can fix them. This would be great if they just thought more of women. We take it in an outer way and we don't see that it's an emotional thing. That In the beginning, for us, the intellect must rule over the emotional side. In the beginning, for us, the only thing we can do at all is intellectual. It's not much, but it's something. And so that's how we begin to cleanse our emotional center, by intellectually 
doing things, by getting positive higher ideas that will lift us up and lift the emotional center up to a new place, to a better place where it can start to be cleansed of negative emotions. As long as we think we know, as long as we think we can do, if we value ourselves before everything else, this will not work. It simply will not work. But it takes years and years and years of grinding and sanding and chipping and chiseling and all this other stuff to knock off all of these tough edges on us because we really do think so much of ourselves. We'll never see we know nothing, nor what we think we know contradicts itself, nor what we always do is the same. We're never going to see this as long as we value ourselves before everything else. If you value yourself above everything else, you're going to value yourself above everything else. So anything that diminishes yourself in any way, anything that rubs against your self-interest, your self-admiration, your self-love, anything that annoys that, that irritates that in the slightest way, you're going to get rid of it. We'll never see that we don't know anything because now we think we know plenty. We'll never see that what we think we know is contradictory. We'll never see that we can't do. We'll go right on thinking that we can. And we'll never see that we're always doing the same things over and over again. We're repetitive, incredibly repetitive. Our doing is really events in life doing us. See, when we're being done, we call it doing. But we're being done. If someone takes a hammer to your new car, you're being done. You will react. You will not respond. And you will react according to the level of identification that you have. If you have a very high level of identification, you will probably react very violently. If you have a low level of identification, you may not react as violently, but the violence is all the same. There is no degree in violence. In our world, we say there's battery and then there's murder and there's second, first degree murder, second degree murder, manslaughter. We have all of these different dividing lines for violence. We are so into violence that we have hundreds of names for different ways to do it. But the truth is, is when you are violent internally, it's all the same. Your emotional center has been contaminated by violence, by negative emotions. And contaminated is contaminated. Pure is pure. It's not 99, 44, 100% pure. Pure is pure. Anything else isn't. And that's how it is for us. All of these illusions must be broken by slowly seeing for ourselves that they are illusions. You can listen to me for the rest of your life and never get a thing. You must see for yourself where you are. You must see for yourself how you are living. You must see for yourself how much you think you know and how much of it you don't really know. You must see these things for yourself. And as I said, when we value ourselves above everything else, it's very distasteful and we won't do it. People will not tolerate this kind of teaching. Like the guy that sent me that email last week or the week before and said, this can't be popular with people. No, it's not popular with people. Of course not. Because it offends our self-love, it offends our self-worth, it offends our self-valuation, it offends our attitude about who we think we are. It's offensive. It's like, get rid of this. You know, there are places I can go where people tell me just nice, wonderful things about myself. I don't need to listen to this crap. That's true. You don't need to. You have to want to. And the only way you want to is if you begin to value something more than yourself. So this, uh, the seeing these illusions, is called the beginning of awakening from sleep. And as I said, it's got a nasty taste to it. You start to wake up and it's like, I think I'll go back to sleep. This is much, sleep is much nicer than this. In the beginning, reality is, is, is a very nasty taste. It's not the same taste as things in life. Things in life taste good. Reality does not taste so good. When we start to see the reality of ourselves, who we really are, it doesn't taste good. We want to spit that right out, spit that out. 
But, you know, the truth is tricky. One of the things they say, one of the things it says in the Bible in Revelation is this angel came to somebody in a dream and said, here, and gave him a scroll and said, eat this. And he ate the scroll and it was sweet as honey in his mouth, but it was sour and bitter in his stomach. And that's what this work is like. There are things about it that are sweet and taste good. Once those ideas get inside of you, they give you an upset stomach. You start to want to regurgitate things. You know, you start to want to get purged things. And when you see how much is inside of you that needs to be purged, you can understand how you get violently ill and why we only take a little bit at a time. And it takes so long to do this. You have to do this over a long period of time. It's not just, oh, there, I'm done. I'm ready. When we do value and ascribe everything to ourselves, our work will lead nowhere because we're starting from the wrong place in us. When we don't value ourselves above everything else, when we don't ascribe everything to ourselves, our work will lead somewhere because we're starting from the right place. How many people can start from the right place? That's the hardest thing there is. When you see runners, sprinters in a starting block, where are they in a starting block? They're actually blocks that their feet fit into that hold still so they can get a good start. It's the most important part of the race. If you get a good start, you figure all the guys out there are fast. They're all fast. They're all faster than anything you can imagine. And the guy who gets the best start is the guy who's going to win the sprint. That's not always that way in a longer race. But a good start in a long race means a slow start. It means an even start. It means a good start. It means a start that you can make and still finish. Personality acts from the force of external circumstances. It's not free, and it can't do. It does, not us. It, the personality, does. We are not doing. We are being dragged around like a flea in a 50-gallon drum. And the 50-gallon drum is being moved around, and we're just in it. We're dragged along with it. But what is moving the 50-gallon drum? Well, it's in a hurricane. It's out on the Gulf of Mexico, and it's in a hurricane. So it's being bounced around by the waves and the wind. And that's our condition. In life, we're like a 50-gallon drum with a flea in it in a hurricane, being bounced around on the, the Sea of Cortez or the Atlantic Ocean or whatever, being bounced around by the waves and the wind and whatever else. We have no control over that. But we imagine that we have control. And actually, the truth is, is that it is doing it. The 50-gallon drum is doing it. It's bouncing here and bouncing there and going up and going down. But what is making it do that? The waves and the wind, the external circumstances of life. When you come to realize that that's how you are, then you realize you can't do. And when you realize you can't do, you're making a good start. It's just the opposite of everything they teach you in life, isn't it? It's just the opposite. No, you have to do this. You have to do that. You have to grab it. You have to study. You have to do this. You have to do that. Yes, you do have to do those things, but not now, not in the beginning. In the beginning, you have to value. In the beginning, you work on valuation. In your beginning, you, you work on finding out that you need this. What we call I is a collection of changing eyes in personality that are set into motion by momentary external circumstances. Anything could happen out there, and it will set eyes, set thoughts, set feelings, set actions in you. They'll start to work. They're set in motion by things out there. You must see this about yourself before you can actually come to terms with anything or before you can really start to value a way that can lead you out of that. Because if you're comfortable in it, why would you want a way out of it? If you're comfortable in your bed, why would you want to get up and go do something? To begin to do, we have to stop these reactions. We have to not do. In the beginning, all that we have to do is non-action, really. It's to keep from expressing the negative emotion, to keep from expressing the negative emotion with your mouth or with your body or with your face, or just keep from going with it. Because as you can see here this morning when we're communicating, people don't have to say anything to communicate. The look on your face does it, your body language does it, or just the atmosphere around you does it. If someone is sensitive enough, 
Someone can tell you what kind of a mood you're in. You can tell other people. You can tell what kind of a mood someone else is in, depending on your sensitivity and your ability to be there, to be aware, to be in the moment with that person. So to begin to do, the first thing we have to do is learn not to do not to allow all these reactions. So now we've got this flea in a 50-gallon drum who can't do anything, but now he knows he can't do anything. Now the whole example breaks down because what can a flea do in a 50-gallon drum? And that's pretty much our, our condition. What can we do? Well, you can get help. That's what you can do. You can hold on until help arrives. You can do that, which isn't really doing, is it? But if you can do that while you're not doing the reactive things then you're doing something, but you're doing something in an internal way. It isn't doing. So if you can keep it from doing everything it wants to do, that's your job. Just keep it from doing everything it wants to do. Does that mean you have to keep it from doing everything it wants to do? No, just keep it from doing some of the things it wants to do. If you can just keep it from doing a couple of the things it wants to do, you're making progress. And the way to do that is by seeing it. You have to be able to see it or else you won't be able to catch it. If you can't catch it, you can't stop it from doing what it wants to do. All we do is remember ourselves, maybe. That's it. What we have to do is remember ourselves. If someone says something to you that usually causes this reaction, all you have to do is remember yourself. And if you can remember yourself, there's a good chance that you might be able to stop that action or that reaction, because it's not really an action, it's a reaction. Unless we return in our minds to the work, relating it to our self-observation and to all that we remember, to our aim, to what it is we want, then this whole system will grow cold, rigid, and inflexible for us. We've got to constantly bring whatever's happening in the world back in our minds to the work. Whatever's happening out there, you've got to bring it back in here to the work. You've got to make it internal. You've got to internalize these work ideas. You've got to have them there when something happens out there. When something happens out there, you've got to be able to meet it internally with a work idea, with a positive idea, with something greater, with something greater than you, higher than you. When you can do that, there's a possibility of stopping it, the personality, from reacting. At Ray, you must learn all the work teaches and apply it to yourself. This doesn't happen overnight. This doesn't happen in a couple of years. It takes a lifetime. Application begins with self-observation, but valuation has to be strong enough to provide the necessary emotional force to make daily effort from understanding. It's no good to make weekly effort. I mean, it may be good if that's all you've got, but if you don't apply that, what you found out about in the week, if you don't apply it every day, where are you going to go? How can you expect anything to happen? How can you expect to get what you want? This whole system will grow cold, rigid, and inflexible for you. It's not the words that matter, but their meaning. People read esoteric writings, they get wrapped up in the words. They lose the meaning. How many people get the meaning of the story of Jacob and Esau? People don't get the meaning. They, they get wrapped up in the words. They get wrapped up in the story. They take it in an outer way, and it doesn't make sense when it starts to contradict all the other things. But taken internally, understanding it in a new way, understanding its meaning, its real meaning, the meaning that was meant, the meanings that were meant. There's not just one. That changes everything. Words can be memorized, but you only learn meaning by seeing the truth of it for yourself. I've heard people quote esoteric teachings, quote scriptures, quote the Quran, quote the Bhagavad Gita, quote the Bible, quote Buddha's sayings. And they didn't know anything about it. They didn't understand anything about the meaning, but they had memorized it. The meaning is where the force is. The meaning is where the force is. And we need the force because we can't do Internally, we're open to the truth. Externally, we're open to lies because we are looking out through our five senses. We are living out through our five senses. And so that makes us open to lies. There's a time to act and a time for non-action. 
The best is to act from non-action, but it takes a long time to learn to do that. It takes a long time to get there where you can act from non-action. But it doesn't take a long time because it can happen right now. But it takes a long time to have it be consistent. Right now, you may act from non-action occasionally. You may just spontaneously do something from inside, and it's exactly what the moment required. But the rest of the time, we're doing it all in personality, and that's different. Now we must know we can't do. This is the note me. Remember the note me? Others can't do, so we can stop judging them as if they could. The note me is when you realize your difficulties. You have applied the work to yourself, and now you've realized your personal difficulties at note me. And then you can see that other people have personal difficulties too, and you can stop judging them as if they could do. As we know and understand ourselves better, we lose many of our conceits. You know, we were pretty wonderful people when we started off. Now we're not so wonderful. We've lost some of our conceits. This is where the work can begin to speak to us and can bring us to the note fa. It can bring us to the note fa. You can't make it to the note fa, but it can bring you to the note fa. There are all these other things that must come first, and these things must be practiced. And they must be practiced on a daily basis. And if you value the work, you will practice them on a daily basis. If you don't value the work, you won't. Often the practical application of these ideas sounds like it's going to be easy. The ideas sound great. When we actually run into a situation or a person who's being a little more difficult than we'd like, we find it's not as easy as we thought it was going to be. If you've hit a snag with some aspect of this work and its practical application in your everyday life, I invite you to write James at SolidRockVista.com. Sometimes a fresh perspective is all it takes to get us back on the right track.